You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. This is Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. For over 45 years, we have specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. From the very beginning, we have been family-owned and family-run. Our tents have become the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers all over the world, and especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions and who demand utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, our tents are made in Europe, built to last, and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use, and remarkable comfort. In alpine climbing, you often make compromises. Do you take rock shoes or do you save weight and climb the rock pitches and boots? Carry a sleeping bag or shiver with a friend? One place you don't have to compromise is your cams. Black Diamond C4 cams have been redesigned for 2019 and the new C4 is 10% lighter than before, but with the same burly construction and proven holding power. So don't leave your toothbrush behind. You can have clean teeth and still pack all the Black Diamond C4s you need. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AAJ. In this episode of The Cutting Edge, we're venturing into the world of FKTs, the fastest known times for mountain ascents, alpine traverses, and similar feats. Our guest is Carl Eckloff, a mountain guide who was virtually unknown outside his home country of Ecuador until 2014, when he set the fastest known time for running up and down Kilimanjaro. The previous record was held by a guy named Killian Jornet. Since then, Ekloff has broken two more records set by the Spanish mountain runner, first on Aconcagua, and then, just last month, on Denali. Ekloff's goal is to set FKTs on each of the seven summits. Carl Ekloff lives in Quito, the capital of Ecuador, at over 9,000 feet above sea level. There are mountains around 20,000 feet high, just an hour or two from home. It's the perfect training ground for running at altitude. This was Ekloff's second attempt on Denali, and he did it in just an eight-day visit to the mountain. Supported by his friend Nicolas Miranda, he raced up the West Buttress route from Cahiltna Base to the 20,320-foot summit in seven hours and 40 minutes, more than two hours faster than Killian Jornet. That route covers about 15.5 miles and more than 13,000 feet in elevation gain. Then he turned around and ran back, beating Jornet's round trip on Denali by a few minutes, even though the Spanish runner skied most of the way down. In this very specialized side of mountaineering, Carl Eckloff is on another level. The AHA's Chris Kalman caught up with him at his home in Quito. Carl, thank you so much for being here to talk with me today. Uh, I'll admit it, Carl, I hadn't heard of you before. Uh, you <laughs> set worry. the Denali speed record. Um, that could just be that... Uh, it's a different type of climbing from what I usually pay attention to, but I've certainly heard of Killian Journey. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I heard that you had beaten his speed record on Denali, I was pretty surprised because I was like, well, who's this guy? So for those of you that um, are not familiar with Carl that are listening, uh, this guy is, <laughs> people are calling him the new Killian, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, but 
Carl's been setting speed records on major mountains all over the world. His latest was Denali. So um, we're going to talk with you a little bit today, Carl, about that climb and uh, how you managed to pull it off. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And um, yeah, uh, I would like to introduce myself. Well, I'm uh, half Ecuadorian, half Swiss. Uh, what does that mean? My father is uh, Swiss and my mother Ecuadorian and I was born here in Quito and uh, I made my, my life and even my my school time here in Ecuador in a German school. And uh, then I went to study in Switzerland and finally I came back to Ecuador to, uh, to become uh, a guide. I'm a mountain guide and uh, this is probably why nobody has heard about me because uh, I'm much more a mountain climber, <laughs> much more a guide. Uh, I developed this uh, sport actually just uh, one coincidence after the other. That's funny. Can you go into at least maybe a couple of those coincidences? Yes, of course. Actually, I was eight years mountain bike uh, racer. I was racing all over the world for Ecuador. I was biking almost uh, eight years uh, everywhere a little bit, even in, in the U.S. in many times, representing Ecuador in the in, in, in championships. And then I, I quit biking because um, I was already 31 and I saw like I did not have any incoming. I did not have any sponsorship. So I thought, I thought actually it's time to, to grow up <laughs> and not bike all the time. And uh, I decided, I decided to, to ask uh, big agencies if they would give me work uh, as a mountain guide abroad. Okay. I was guiding here in Ecuador all the time. And a Swiss company said, yeah, Carl, you, you can, uh, you can come. Uh, you, you speak fluently Swiss. So you can guide a group from us uh, on Kilimanjaro. And I said, well, Kilimanjaro looks like not a very t technical mountain, but it looks like a beautiful place to be. So I decided to go. And then when I was guiding my people up to the mountain, uh, they were tired after uh, all these this day by days. And in the afternoon, I went jogging, sometimes to the summit, sometimes to the ridge. And then uh, people started to talk like we have never seen someone jogging up here at 5,000 meters, which is uh, almost 17,000 feet. We have never seen uh, someone like on the afternoon run, running as he would be on the park. And for me, it was nothing new because I, I was doing this in Ecuador too, in my spare time with my people were on the huts or, or in the refuge. I was uh, spending my free time also sometimes outside or climbing by myself to the summit. But I did not know about this sport. I did not know about these FKTs. I did not know that someone takes time to, to, to go up and go down. And uh, when I returned to Switzerland, the, the agency said, Carl, we should try to, to with you to uh, make a speed ascent on Kilimanjaro. And I said, yeah, and how does it go? And they said, actually, the record is, is made by Kilian Jornet. And I said, who is Kilian? I've never heard about him. <laughs> and then they said, uh, well, you should, you should Google him. And I was Googling him and I said, what? <laughs> he was like beating all and he was like a machine. Uh, and I said, okay, this is kind of very serious. And I was those days still biking a lot. And I said, okay, let's go to Kilimanjaro. I don't have nothing to lose. I'm, I'm uh, a completely unknown mountain guide and uh, the agency they did everything so I could start and then I started to run from the base of the mountain and when I arrived to the summit I saw to my I saw the first time I watched and I said like I'm 20 minutes 24 minutes under his time this is kind of kind of weird I, it's not possible he's definitely uh -huh. so fast <laughs> on the downhill 
and then I, I was not even smiling on this on the summit because I was really anxious. I know that uh-huh. he's a very fast runner on downhill, and I I just speed up as as much as I as as I could going down. I I I risked everything going down, and then finally arrived to the gate. And I saw the watch, and I, I, I had like six hours forty-two minutes, and and the record to beat was seven hours fourteen. So I did not re- even realize what I did. Uh, wow! I I just thought, okay, uh, the agency is going to give me more work because I we <laughs> we could beat the record. And then when I arrived to the hotel, uh, there was a lot of people asking who who is this guy? Is like the first time ever that someone beats a, a, a Killian's record. And I was not aware of anything. It was there were Africans doing press conference outside, and I, for me, it was like I just want to go guiding again. And then when I returned to Ecuador, uh, they said to me, "Actually, Carl, what what is your next mountain?" And I said, "What what next mountain? I, I don't know." <laughs> and and then I said to myself, "Actually, it would be just really really nice to do those things that I I could never afford them." So I I thought, sure. why not the seven summits? Sounds sounds like very cool to be like everywhere in the world, and right. definitely people know this this mountain. So I I said, actually, just talking. From the bottom of my heart, no, no, you're thinking about money. I, th- I thought, yeah, if, actually, I w- I'm gonna try the speed record of all those seven summits. And then uh-huh. a w- two days later, Kilian announced that he's going to Aconcagua, and I said, like, oh, oh no, I was going to Aconcagua too. I was going to guide my people <laughs> in Aconcagua, so it looked right. like, a, 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 like it's something personal. And then Kilian yeah. went to Aconcagua, he beat the record, and then I went a month later and beat his record. So <laughs> everybody was was asking me like Carl, what do you have against Killian? And I said, no, you don't have nothing <laughs> against Killian. This is just a coincidence. It's like everything right. is coincidence. And then everything started to become really serious. Like uh, the brands outside said, okay, this is definitely someone we could sponsor. I went to Switzerland. I got sponsored six years by Mammut, and then uh-huh. uh, I started to 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 be invited in all these trail running events. And I was never a runner. So they said, like, if you beat Killian on the mountains, you you can beat Killian on the on races. And I thought, no way! Actually, he's uh-huh. the he's a trail runner. I'm the mountain climber. <laughs> I'm I, I'm gonna stay here. So everything right. came one thing after the other, and then Elbrus and then Denali. So right now I'm just looking back, and I don't even realize what what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, that's a that's a, like amazing and also hilarious story. <laughs> I'm really excited to hear about Denali because there were some interesting differences between how you and Killian uh, went about your your speed records on there. So let's just dive right in. Um, when did you arrive on the mountain? Well, uh, I tried, this is important to know, that I was a year before already in Denali. Uh, I went with a, with a good friend of mine. We were two people going on 2018 to Denali, and we had already in mind to try the speed record. And uh, we did an acclimatization, a very fast one. We summited after three days. Uh, it was like very fast with uh, huge backpacks. We did not take any sleds, nothing. We just walking, walking very heavily. And we did the summit in three days. We were surprised. And then when we went down the mountain, we were waiting for the perfect day. And uh, one front after the other came. And so we had to, to blow it off. And, um, and, and we, we, we said, actually, we, we have to come back next year, but late, late in June. Because last year we were very early in May. 
Gotcha. And uh, there was uh, too much, too much snow, and uh, there were no people summiting. Mm. We thought uh, probably it could it would be great to be on the very end of the season because a lot of people are summiting, so they're going to make the path. And you yeah. need uh, you need the perfect conditions on, on especially on the upper part. So we we were exactly uh, eight nights in Denali, including the speed record and everything. And from these eight nights, uh, the first thing we did is uh, as soon as we arrived on. On the base camp, we were talking to guides and to people and people we know on the mountain um, how conditions are. And they said, yeah, conditions are pretty good, but there will the, there is a front coming in and probably it's going to snow. Uh, so we were waiting for this, uh, for this snowfall and, of course, not waiting on the base camp. We took our things up to Camp 3. And uh, from one day, we went from base camp to Camp 3 and we spent three nights in Camp 3 waiting for this uh, snowfall and then finally this snowfall came uh, i went up to camp 4 in uh, in the same day to see how conditions are up there and then we decided okay in two days we're going to try so uh, my my buddy the the nicolas who is always with me on those on those uh, records he stayed on on camp 3 and i i went with my sled all the way down to base camp and on the day number 7 on day 7 i tried the record at seven o'clock and uh, I started from base camp to camp one with snowshoes. Uh, I bought very good and athletic snowshoes because the snowshoes can be, of course, very heavy and very, very big. It was um, absolutely different than Kilian. Of course, I would have loved to use skis, especially on the downhill. But all my records, uh, all the seven summits in speed climbing, I'm doing them exactly the same way. Kind of my religion of this project. And uh, it's kind of so people know how, how, what, is, what is the time to beat. And then on camp, on camp one, I just dropped the snowshoes on the side and started to go up the mountain with jogging shoes, but with uh, micro crampons. And uh, I was using these shoes from camp one to camp two. And when I, when I arrived on Camp 3, this means on 11,000 feet camp, mm-hmm. um, I was the first time I could uh, measure my time with Kilian's time because I, this, this was kind mm-hmm. of the first split I had. And I was 16 minutes behind. And uh, we... Six zero? Uh, no. One, like an hour? No, one six. 16. Ah, okay. And, okay. And then I figured out that this was great because we planified to go easy on the beginning. And, uh, okay. and when I arrived on camp four, I saw the second split on camp four and I was exactly the same time as Killian. So I was winning time again. And, uh, when I was on camp four, I thought, okay, perfectly right now, I just have to hold. This is kind of my best part of the mountain It's going to be the altitude. And then I started to overtake people and people and people and people after one after the other. And after finishing the fixed ropes and, uh, arriving to the ridge, I was alone. Uh-huh. I had overtaken all and on the ridge, it was amazing. I did not have anybody there. And I knew this is going to be like um, the perfect moment to win time. Hmm. And then when I arrived right. to Camp 5, I saw that it was really windy up on the mountain. You could see after Denali Pass kind of, kind of uh, waves of wind going and dusts of wind. Hmm. And uh, I thought, okay, this is, this is going to be difficult. I need uh, to wear more, more things and more things. And I changed my, my, my shoes to mountain boots because I knew uh-huh. I don't want to freeze my toes. And um, I changed, I put uh, normal crampons as a guide, my guiding crampons. So really good material, really good uh-huh. gear. I don't want it to risk anything. I'm, I have a child at home. 
and then I started I started to to uh, climb the last part, which is the most difficult one. And on the Denali Pass, I had tons of people again. But uh, I was very happy because I think the National Park gave through the radio of the guides that I was attempting the record and then I, then I was going very fast up. So people turned around, especially the guides. And uh, soon as they saw oh, wow. me, they, they sometimes they were cheering me or they went to a site or nice. some of them, they of course, they were on their, on their own limit. But it was nice. The people were cheering me. And as soon as I arrived uh-huh. on the Denali Pass, I knew we we're going to take him for minimum one and a half hours because we were, I was already an hour 30 or something under the record. And then from Denali oh. Pass to the summit, uh, I was very lucky. There was a lot, a lot of wind. It was really cold, but it was not constantly. It was kind of dusty. Mm. So it came and came or sometimes it was even sunny. And when we arrived and overtook hundreds of people, we were alone, absolutely alone on the final ridge. And wow. then when we were alone on the final ridge, I saw, finally, I saw my buddy and he was like filming me from the summit and he was like cheering me. And then I arrived to the summit. I, I stopped the watch and I saw it and I could not believe it. I was two hours and five minutes faster than Killian. And uh, I, re- wow. I realized that, okay, if I'm two hours and five minutes faster, I should go also the round trip and try the, the, the round trip record, even without skis. But I took my time right. up there. I took some pictures there. I enjoyed it. I, do, I did a video uh-huh. for my son. And then I started to go down. And the, the bad thing is that a lot of people turned around that day because it was so cold and so windy. So I had to overtake huh. the same people again on the Nali Pass. And uh, right. this was kind, <laughs> of, kind of ironic. I said, no way. I, everyone again... And then I was starting to overtake the people and uh, it, the, the, the snow outside, outside the path was, you know, like very difficult to step on it, even on, until the knees. I was going fast, but I was not going on my limit because it's a little bit dangerous on those, on those parts. There's a, the ridge, there was wind coming in. There was people, uh, sometimes uh, groups, big groups uh, going up and down. So when, when, I, when I arrived on Camp 4, I, I said to myself, if I'm still on a good time from Camp 4, I go, I'm going to give it everything. And when I arrived to Camp uh-huh. 4, I saw my watch and I had three hours left for the record. And I said, OK, mm. right now I'm going to go for it. The toughest part was on the way down. The snow was melting. It was really hot out there. It was very sunny out there. So um, on the, la- the last camp, especially from Camp two to camp one i was uh, kind of walking in water i was sinking every every time to the knees and it was like wow. kind of frustrating and i i thought exactly then i thought why in the hell i was going out down without skis but anyway i was going down right. without the skis <laughs> and then when i arrived on camp one i took the snowshoes and i thought it's going to be much easier with the snowshoes but it, it wasn't because it was so wet mm. that as soon as you started jogging the, the snow uh, kind of felt like in water, but it was a, ment- yeah. a mental thing. On the end, I was fighting every minute, and then I was I was watching to my to, to the I was uh, looking all the time to my watch. And on the end, we made it. We I was four minutes faster. I just as soon as I arrived, I stopped the watch and just lied uh, two minutes on the snow, smiling to heaven, and I said, okay. Uh, we we did it, but uh, there is a lot of uh, tons of things that go through your mind on that moment. But um, sure. a lot of people were cheering there, and uh, yeah, I was freezing. The good the the the, the strange <laughs> thing is, what I was freezing because 
the snowshoes made me completely wet because uh, uh, every, yeah. everything goes to the air and on the end I had, had even snow in my ears. <laughs> so <laughs> it was kind of funny. <laughs> that must have been quite the sight to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> wow. So you you ended up beating the round trip time too by, you said, four minutes? Uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And you guys, you spent eight days on the mountain, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that's not, that's not a lot of time. How were you able to acclimatize so effectively in just eight days on the mountain? Well, um, if you are staying too many days on the mountain, you're getting weak. Even if you are spending time on altitude and you figure out altitude is going to help me for the, for the record... Um, definitely if you are spending three, four, five nights in the same tent in altitude, it's going to make you weak. You are never going to eat like at home. You're going to never sleep like at home. So, uh, we knew that from last year and, uh, we actually figured out that Denali is one of the most difficult mountains to recover because you always have Hmm. daylight. So it's very difficult to sleep at night. And, uh, uh, and as, as you are sleeping on the glacier, over the glacier, you feel the cold temperatures on your back all the time. So if you sleep sure. two or three hours in a row is, uh, is a lot. So definitely we knew that gotcha. we, we don't want to spend that much time on, on Denali. So I did a very uh, fast acclimatization in Ecuador. I did um, one week of acclimatization. I did two summits going on the same pace as I was proposed to do it on Denali so just to figure out how my pulse was going and I did a mountain which is uh-huh. almost the same uh, high as alt as, uh, as Denali Cotopaxi is almost the same altitude and then I did right, two days right. later I did another mountain here and uh, as soon as we arrived in Alaska uh, there was a matter a matter of fact of how conditions were there and we were figuring out okay we don't want to spend that much time on sea level so uh, we we were lucky that as soon as we arrived on Denali uh, we were in total just four days on uh, on sea level not more and starting after, uh-huh. uh, after four days you you are you start your body starts to to lose the altitude so uh, we were really happy that we could enter pretty fast to the mountain and when we were there uh, we I spent three nights in Camp Three, which is uh, eleven thousand feet, and uh, for me it was good this altitude. I did not want to to freeze or to even uh, sleep worse uh, on the higher camps because if you are climbing higher, you're gonna sleep less. So uh, we decided to spend a couple of days there, and then for training on the on, on during daytime, we went up to Camp Four to see how conditions were there, and as soon as we were mm-hmm kind of sure that it's going to be a window for for the attempt we said okay uh i should go down to the base camp and and go for it don't spend too much time on the summit and on the on the mountain and so regarding the route if i understand correctly you ended up diverging from the path killian took at the 14,200 foot camp right Mm -hmm. exactly and from there you decided to follow the main west buttress route which climbs up and left to the ridge line while killian went up the rescue gully which goes more directly to 17,200 foot camp Uh uh-huh exactly had had you planned that out well in advance or was that more of like a split second decision um we saw that two days before it uh, it was snowing pretty hard on camp four so as soon as we knew this uh 
this snowfall we we said to each other that it's you need definitely a good path on the rescue gully to win time if you don't have a path on the rescue gully you you definitely going to lose time even if it is a short way so uh, we just uh, thought okay let's let's see how conditions are during the climb uh-huh. and as soon as we were attempting to the to the summit uh, conditions were perfect on the autobahn uh, gotcha. so i decided actually to do the longer way but keep on the path and it was a smart mm-hmm. decision because uh, um, it was really really very good conditions on the ridge so i'm definitely sure even if we have tried uh, rescue gully would we would definitely not not have won that much time because uh it was everything new snow lying on it and you need time to do the path there so okay a couple of questions and i think these are questions that a lot of people will have anytime we're starting to talk about speed records i think it's kind of natural to be like well, did you do it all on your own or were you supported somehow? Like, did you carry all of your food and water or did your friend carry some? Like, did you have anything stashed on the route? Can you walk me through like those kinds of questions? Absolutely. Um, I think to do it completely unsupported is um, is very difficult because you, you have to take uh, a lot of food. You have to take all your gear. You should take more than one pair of shoes and everything. So in my case, it was absolutely logical, and in all mountains I do it the same. I I I get supported. I have uh, someone on the yeah. mountain, and uh, I leave gear behind. And when I arrive to to these places, I change my gear, and uh, so I make it a little bit safer. And uh, regarding mm-hmm. food and regarding water, I definitely also pa- plan sometimes uh, days before where I'm gonna pass and then leave something behind. Or if I'm sure. passing my body, he gives me something to eat. But uh, what is absolutely forbidden in this sport is to get um, physical help. That means if uh-huh. someone is pulling you, or if someone is uh, holding you on a rope, or if someone, or if you are using the fixed ropes uh, with uh, with special, you know, like grigris or with umar or something right. like that. It's uh, it, Definitely, of course, if you if you hold the fixed lines with your hand, it's, it's up to you. But if you are using other things or oxygen or so things, it would make it a, a little bit uh, unfair. Um, gotcha. But, of course, there are people that say, ah, yeah, I, I have I done it absolutely unsupported. But even people on the mountain are going to help you. So it's al- always a yeah. question like, how does it go if someone gives you something? It's not all supported, unsupported. Right. So it's always a question and can be criticized. So I'm very open on it. I'm I have my people up on the mountain, and even if something happens, uh, Nicolas in this case, he's uh, he's providing me rescue. He's providing GPS. He's having everything. I'm I'm a family father, and this is the way I can I can I can uh, I don't know like increase uh, the possibility that nothing happens. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And of course, you know, anywhere that fixed lines are coming into play, I mean, it'd be kind of hard. I guess you could you could make the argument that you're doing it unsupported if you don't ever even touch the fixed lines. But even just knowing that if you were to break your ankle or something, that those fixed lines are there and that there's guides on the mountain. And, you know, if you're in the Himalaya, maybe there are Sherpas as well. I mean, that all sort of it it almost feels like unsupported could be more contrived than supported yes and it's always a question of uh, of the risk uh, if if i'm overtaking 100 people on a fixed rope i'm definitely gonna avoid 
being even close to the fixed lines right. because uh, you cannot go so fast. So right. uh, this is always a question of of what is your strategy and you you also uh, choose what time to start, what time to arrive on on certain places because you want to avoid people uh, on the mountain definitely. But on the same time. I have done all the records on those days. They they have been crowded on the mountain mm-hmm. because they are gonna testify that I was there, and they are gonna see sure. me there. I was there. You you don't you don't have time to make pictures and videos. They are gonna right. do it for you. And on the on the end, uh, on the end, they have my time. They have my my videos. They have my footage, and this is gonna help me to prove that I was there. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean for fastest known times like these there's there's often some sort of someone will come out and say oh i don't think he did it in that speed or you know something like that so documentation is is a really important part of those absolutely and i think if you are the underdog like in my case and uh, definitely you have to prove it more than anyone else so uh, i was carrying my gps my garmin inreach i was carrying my watch i was carrying extra battery i was carrying everything just just that uh, on the end uh, it was worth it, and not that on the end I'm arriving and I don't have any proof, and and this wouldn't be like fair. Gotcha. Um, one of the things I wanted to see if you could go into detail about was just clothing and food. Uh, I think that I read that Killian only drank like half a liter of water on the day of his speed record. So what what all did you bring on on the big day? Well, on the days before, I was taking care a lot about what to eat because you want to digest very good uh, without any problems. You don't want to have any diarrhea or problems with your water and uh, going regularly to the toilet. So you start two or three days in advance to drink tons of water. Uh, and on the day of the record, I stood up uh, two hours in advance to eat something. I was eating oatmeal. And I was eating um, also uh, some fruits. I, I avoided on the record day to drink coffee. I love coffee. I'm a, a huge coffee fan. Uh-huh. But when, when the big day comes, it's not definitely your best friend. You're going to run for the toilet. So um, mm, right. I, I decided to eat some oatmeal. And when I started to, to go for it, I was very aware that every hour I have to eat something. So um, I did not put any alarm clock. I was just Every time I, I saw the possibility to, to have something on my mouth, I was eating uh, uh-huh. some, something that I could, I could uh, swallow, something that was not frozen, like gummy beers. I was eating some, uh, some nuts. Uh, I took like in total just two power gels, uh, but I, I'm not eating that much. I'm similar to Killian. Uh-huh. I'm not eating that much, but uh, a difference to Killian, I drink a lot. I drink a lot okay. of water because I come from from another school. For me, uh, if a client tells me how he has to develop altitude training, it has to do a lot with what you eat and what you drink. So I always mm-hmm. uh, suggest to drink six or seven liters uh, of water per day when, when they are on altitude. So on the record day, you definitely right. you, you don't want to carry six liters of water. It definitely you're going to hurt your back. But uh, anytime I was passing a camp, I was drinking something, and I had I was I was taking almost two liters of water with me, and I was uh-huh. I was refilling the water any any time I I had the possibility. On the end, on these twelve hours that I was on the mountain, I was drinking in total around two liters of water. Of course, it's not that much, but um, I think uh, less would create cramps, uh, and yeah, this is this is the way I go to the mountain. 
another question, this is sort of changing gears a little bit, but there are certainly people out there that would say, oh, speed climbing, fastest known times. This isn't climbing. This isn't mountaineering. This isn't alpinism. This is something else. Um, what what would you say to people that, you know, bring up those sort of critiques? Um, I'm used to it. Uh, my own father, he was um, very skeptical on the first time when I when I did my first ever FKT here in Cotopaxi in Ecuador, which is a very renamed mountain here in Ecuador. I came back home and I said, Father, I did the new world fastest known time here in Ecuador. And my father said to me, and right now you feel better than anyone else or what? <laughs> and I said, and I said, no, I just wanted to, to, to tell you. And he said, like, this is a huge mistake, son, because you are probably people are going to hear from it and nobody is going to going to join you as a guide on the mountain. The people are going to be like anxious that you're going to run on the mountain and (laughs) nobody is going to take you as a guide. You're just just destroying all the business. (laughs) And, uh, and he said to me, like, even if you are moving fast, you should do it by yourself, not telling anyone. So actually Uh you have to think about this is, this is not a sport. He said to me, and today he's my biggest fan. He's ah, the cool. one analyzing the next mountain. He's the one like telling uh-huh. me like uh, how to come to Indonesia for the next one. And uh, it's funny how everything developed. And I think people yeah. are developing too. They, you cannot compare both sports. I'm a mountain guide. I guide a lot of people in the mm-hmm. slowest pace possible. Yeah. And uh, I enjoy it too. I enjoy it a lot. And I understand that people can criticize it. But what a lot of people don't know is that behind an FKT, there is a a huge respect to the mountain. Uh, mm. I think it's the respect to, of climbing a mountain on a fast way is is even bigger than on the traditional way. Why? Really? Because you can you cannot accept that a front is coming in uh, with uh, with the little clothes you're wearing. Uh, you mm. can you can you can diet out there if if you are freezing too fast, if you're not eating too fast. So you have to calculate every single detail, everything mm. that. Normally, if you are with a big backpack on your on your back and you can stop and wear another layer or another gloves um, on the end and on speed climbing, you have to calculate all those things in advance because yeah. you don't have a big backpack on your back. And on the end of the day, I'm so thankful with the mountain. I'm so thankful for the opportunity. I'm a, a human being that is very, very connected to the mountain. And uh, I normally, if I'm not too far away, I used to climb the mountain two or three days after on the very smoothest pace uh-huh. just to enjoy and to say thank you to the mountain and for the, to taking care of me. So uh, I think there are two sides of Carl Eglov, the side of guiding and being really connected to the mountain and, uh-huh. and the other side that I just go for it. And um, But the, the disrespect never exists. Even mm. when I'm guiding and I have done Corpaxi for 300 times, uh, every time is like a new experience. Cool. So here's a question. Uh, if no one was paying you, let's say uh, if you didn't have, if you were like your dad said and you were just out there doing it alone and not telling anybody, do you think you would still be trying for personal for fastest known times? Do you still think like that type of climbing would be captivating to you? Or would you just skip straight ahead to like the nice smooth pace that you were just talking about? This is a, a very good question, Chris, because uh, if you are doing it on your own way without nobody to know it, you wouldn't have any sponsors. I don't want to be like, wow, like everybody has to know me, but I, I, I would like to finish my project. The next three are very expensive. I cannot afford them without sponsorship. 
uh, right now, um, everything is coming together. So I'm very happy that Denali was not the first one. Because if I, have, I, I would have chosen Denali on the first time, probably nobody would have said um, anything about it. Mm. But after being like the fourth and three of them were from Killian, people started to believe that there is someone behind that can be fast on the mountain. And this is exactly how we planned it, mm. uh, that Denali should be halfway to this project. So is Everest the next one for you then? The Everest is going to be the last one. Uh, I okay. hope I, I can already start training on the mountain in in uh, one and a half years. So in, in 2021, I hope that I we can already climb Everest for the first time and being probably there the entire season, acclimatizing, checking and everything and doing some adjustments. And I'm definitely trying on 2022, if everything comes together, to end this project. And this is also a promise to my family because definitely it's not it's not healthy and it's not nice when I'm out there trying to beat the records and jumping over crevasses yeah. and risking my life. Right, and on the, right. on the end, I'm a daddy, I'm a husband. Training for this FKTs takes you a lot of time. I'm training 25 yeah. hours per week for it so uh, wow. it, it, it became like uh, my, my my main life right now training for them and um, this is why even my son he says like are you going to Everest and I said yes son but we are not going to talk right now about it right now I'm going to enjoy you and we're going to talk it when I'm flying there and definitely I will be aware that I the most important thing is is uh, to, 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 to do it safely and come back safely awesome well, we'll be uh, cheering you on and hoping for the best. <laughs> Thanks so much. You can learn more about Carl Eckloff and his guiding business at cumbretours.com. The Cutting Edge is presented by Hilleberg the Tent Maker. Learn more about their bomb-proof tents at hilleberg.com. This episode also was supported by AAJ sponsor Black Diamond Equipment. Until next time... This is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs.